um, a good journey, a hard journey, um, but has been a fruitful journey for us. And today we find ourselves in chapter 12, and really in a second, might want to say, story account uh, along the way here. So we welcome you to join and participate with us this morning. In 1956, a game show called To Tell the Truth aired for the very first time. Some of you grew up with that show, and some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But you will realize that you probably know a lot more than you think you do if you have no idea about this show. To Tell the Truth aired for the first time in 1956, and here's the basic premise. Three contestants, each of them who claim to be the same person, are interrogated by a panel of celebrities in an attempt to identify who the real one is and who are the ones who are bluffing. Now, the contestant is asked a a lot of different questions, all sorts of different questions from that celebrity panel. Um, And at the end, each celebrity has to make a decision. Is it, you know, number one, number two, number three? And um, the announcer then, after they have given their decision, will say the following thing. Will the real stand up? Now, it could be, for example, a police officer who had sailed around the world. It could be someone like a a breakfast chef who had baked the largest waffle. It could be a lumberjack who wrote a children's storybook. And so they have to ask all these questions and they have to try their best to figure out who it is. And so when they finally make the decision, that announcer says, will the real lumberjack please stand up? So you've heard that expression before, that's where it comes from. And now there's a sense in which As we come to this passage, one of the questions that John is addressing here is whether or not Jesus is the true Messiah, is the true King. Because around the time of Jesus, before and after, there had been many imposters claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the King of the Jews, and adored and followed by certain people in such ways that there were rebellions, there were uprisings against the Romans, and in particular uh, uh, of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem. In fact, some of those uprisings captured Jerusalem. One in particular captured it for three years and had a huge following, but eventually Rome would come back and would not only crush that leader, but would crush many of the followers. Thousands are killed because they're following someone they were calling a Messiah, someone they were calling a king. But friends, none of these were the true Messiah. None of these were the true king. So in the midst of that kind of a climate, here we have this this king of kings, Jesus, coming onto the scene. He is the one that is foretold in the Old Testament. He is the the one John was preparing the way for. He is the one that John refers to as the Word, the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, the Word that was in the beginning with God. He is the Word that took on flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. He is the Word that was the light in the darkness, but ultimately would be rejected by his own. This Word is Jesus. That's what John is declaring in this whole gospel that this word, this Messiah, 
This king is none other than Jesus. And so through repeated evidence, over and over and over again, he's putting him on display so that you will see the evidence, so you will weigh the evidence, and you will believe and ultimately have life. And so another way to say it is this, that John, in our text today, is announcing, will the true Messiah please stand up? And Jesus then comes onto the scene into Jerusalem now as the true Messiah, as the true King. Now notice if you would please at verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, fear not daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this is the text of scripture that we typically will go to for the day that is called Palm Sunday. So you're hearing a message kind of out of its normal setting, if you might want to say, because we're going through the gospel. And here we have it in John's gospel. Not everything that is mentioned in John's gospel or not everything that's mentioned in the other gospels about the same event is, is mentioned in John's gospel, but we have a, an awareness of what has taken place here, that Jesus is now coming, fulfilling this, this passage uh, from Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 through 11. Would you turn there, um, please, so that we can think through what is actually taking place here. Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Zechariah in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets. Um, I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. Um, yes, it's not easy to find. Really, really toward the end, okay? Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. In, in, that, in this passage, which is what is being quoted here, uh, we find that the king will do four things. Let me just give them to you and then you'll see them as we read through the passage. This king will end all wars. This king will proclaim peace. This king will rule the world. This king will establish a blood covenant. Okay? He'll end all wars. He'll proclaim peace. He'll rule the world. He'll establish a blood covenant. Now, let's read from verses 9 and following. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace. So the cutting off there is saying, I'm going to end wars. I'm going to usher in now peace to the nations. His rule shall be from the sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, behold, or as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So here they have these four things. He'll end all wars, he'll proclaim peace, he'll rule the world, he'll establish a blood covenant. But he comes in a different way than you would think a conquering king would come. So the question here is this. What has the king come to do? And there's gonna be three answers I wanna give you here. The king, first of all, has come to die. He's come to die. That is, his first purpose. That's what Mark's gospel specifically tells us just before um, uh, Jesus 
uh, before Mark actually records this, this triumphal entry, there's some information, there's some storyline, so to speak, that he gives us um, in chapter, chapter 10 of Mark, beginning at verse 32. And we find Jesus interacting with the disciples and preparing them for what is yet to come. And, and in, the, in Mark's gospel specifically, he tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Look at verse 32, Mark chapter 10, if you want to follow there. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, John doesn't give us that information, but the other Gospels let us know that Jesus was very clear about what he was going to be doing. The Gospel of Luke, you find the same thing. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and we find again four times in that, in that particular Gospel, he says these very same words, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to be, um, you know, flogged, I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to go to a cross, I'm going to die. So he lays it all out there, okay? So we know that in coming into Jerusalem, as this king, as this Messiah, he is coming ultimately to die, all right? Secondly, he is coming to fulfill scripture. He's coming to fulfill scripture. Part of what Jesus is accomplishing on the earth is fulfilling what God, the Father, or the Godhead has already revealed about his divine plan through the ages, which ultimately ends with an, that sacrifice once for all on the cross. And we're not going to go through all the different passages of Scripture, but he is coming as a fulfillment, but also to fulfill what has been declared already in the Old Testament. The third thing is he is coming to reveal himself as the Passover lamb. What happens at Passover? One of the things that happens at Passover on a, spe a specific day is a lamb in each of the families is slaughtered, is killed, and they have a Passover feast. And it has to be a particular kind of animal. It has to be a lamb without spot or blemish. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the same day that other lambs would be brought into Jerusalem because they would spend three to four days with families before they would actually sacrifice that lamb. So there's, there's timing that's going on here in this triumphal entry as Jesus then is coming into the city. So let's just kind of summarize this. The king in all his glory enters Jerusalem in humility as the prepared Passover lamb to die, to fulfill prophecy, and to bring satisfaction to the Father through his shed blood on the cross. Now, the question for us then is, did those in attendance on that day um, as he entered Jerusalem, understand what was going on? Did they comprehend who this king was and what he had come to do? Did they understand that the will of the Father and the thread of divine purpose um, was taking place in the life of Jesus? How then did they react to this king coming into Jerusalem on this day? How do they respond to this Messiah coming on this donkey into Jerusalem? Well, there's three reactions that John reveals for us. Three different ways 
that um, different groups of people react. And we're gonna look at those three different reactions. The, we're gonna see, uh, first of all, a celebration. We're gonna see uh, confusion. And then we're also gonna see frustration. And in each of these reactions, there's also a window. This is absolutely amazing. There's this also window that points us to Jesus Christ on the cross and what he does there for us on the cross. So not only is he coming in as king, but as he's coming in as king and the things that take place or the things that are said by these various groups point us to Jesus and what he is ultimately going to do on the cross. And you'll see that as we move along here. But let me just take a moment right now just to take us to a place of prayer and ask God for wisdom. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for all that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of your word. Lord, as we have taken time to, to set things up here, Lord, so that we can look at this passage of scripture, I ask that now your Holy Spirit would be at work uh, revealing your truth, uh, cementing it together, Lord, and allowing us to see, Lord, what it is that you desire for us to do, Lord, how we need to change or how we need to be conformed to your will. And uh, Lord, would you strengthen us, Lord, give us hearts that are teachable, give us minds, Lord, that are desiring to learn and able, Lord, to comprehend your truth. We ask, Lord, for your ministry in our lives. Help me, Lord, simply to be your mouthpiece, that you would be glorified, we ask in your name, amen. So I wanna begin here by looking at the celebration of the crowds. We have these crowds. Let's look how they celebrate the coming of the king. Look at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now we're going to look at this from kind of two vantage points. First of all, what I'm calling the gathering, the gathering. Who is part of this crowd? There are really two groups that make this crowd, all right? Two crowds, so to speak, that come together as the great crowd, okay? Um, or the large crowd, it says in verse 12. So verses 17 and 18 help us to, to, to understand a little bit more about who was there and how they got there. First of all, there were those in the crowd, or the, there was a crowd in particular that had come from Bethany. What happened in Bethany? Anyone remember? All right, Lazarus was raised in the tomb. People were there. People were eyewitnesses. They experienced it. They saw it. And then they went into the villages telling people about what happened to Lazarus in Bethany. We also find then that there was this kind of celebration feast. It was in the home there um, where Mary anoints Jesus, but I'm sure that there were other people that were hearing about it too, and so this message was, was, was being broadcast around those regions, all right? So that's the first group that we have here. Notice verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So there they were. Now, there was another crowd. Um, this crowd are those who had come as pilgrims to the city of Jerusalem. Because this is Passover. This is a requirement. This is what they did. They came from all over the land, and they converged on Jerusalem. So you have this, might want to say, a smaller crowd that is coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. And when that crowd gets to Jerusalem or gets around these other people that are pilgrims, what are they doing? Well, verse 17 tells us. They continued to bear witness. They continued to tell the story. They continued to testify about 
who Jesus is, what he had done, in particular, what had taken place with Lazarus. So you have these two crowds, a smaller crowd, a larger crowd, but the, the story was spreading out now through this particular crowd. So there were eyewitnesses, but most of the crowd were people that had heard what the eyewitnesses had said. But also remember that there's a context here. And what's the context? What was happening in Jerusalem as it related to Jesus? What message had been broadcast throughout Jerusalem concerning Jesus? The religious leadership said, you know, we want to find out if you know anything about Jesus, you need to let us know. Because they were out to do what? To arrest him, ultimately to put him to death. And so there was this tension. There was this news. And so there was this tension. Ah, the religious leadership want to do something with Jesus, but there's also this great story about what he has done. And so there's interest. There's intrigue, and the crowd is gathered, and it's, it's a lot of people. What's going to happen here? Oh, he's the king. The Messiah has come. Now, friends, just understand this, that man can be stirred up by many things in a frenzy, and not always necessarily thinking through at all. You understand that? People can get on the bandwagon, so to speak. And here we have another Messiah, another king, so to speak. Maybe this one will work. Maybe this one, because of these things that have been, have been done, maybe this is the one who is going to come and ultimately deliver us from the yoke of Jerusalem, or a yoke of the Romans. So there's the, first of all, there's the gathering. Now I want you to think about what I'm calling the celebrating. What specifically are they doing as Jesus is coming on this donkey? Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So there's these palm branches, first of all. Um, also known as lulas, Okay. Um, they have become a symbol of Israel. It was like their national symbol. Now, one of the things about living in the United States is we love our flag. Now, what's interesting to me is when I've gone to other countries, they don't have the same respect or appreciation for their flag. Here, it's not unusual to see American flags all over the place and people being very, very patriotic. And I would say this, outside of California, you see it even more, Okay. Here, it's almost like you see a lot less of it. You go to other parts of the country. It's very, very patriotic and waving the flags, waving the flags. Well, in that day, they didn't you know, have, you know, here's the, here's the flag stand. You know, here comes the king with get your flag. No, they just went and they grabbed a palm branch because they're all over the place. Now, did they have to climb up the palm tree? Have you guys ever been around? Anyone here have palm trees? Anything like that? They're messy, right? There are branches on the ground all the time. They're easy to get to easy to be seen, easy to use, easy to wave, and have become the symbol of, I want to say, nationalism for those Jewish people. So Jewish patriotism may be the better way to put it. So they're waving these branches. Also, they're, they're saying, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us now, or give salvation now. All right, take this yoke from off of us. So they're waving branches. They're they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. But more specifically, they're quoting and they're singing the Hallel. And they would typically sing the Hallel, which are Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. The quote that we have here, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, comes from Psalm 118, verse 25. So here we have them singing this Hallel, saying Hosanna, saying save us. So they're, they're, they're celebrating the king is coming. They're celebrating their desire for salvation. Okay? That's the picture. So there's two parts to the praise. Words and action. Words and action. Now, this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. But let's just think about it. You can sing with just words, right? You can talk with just words. But we also recognize that the body communicates a lot too, right? We sang some great songs today. You know, here's one that we didn't sing, you know. Oh, sacred head now wounded. No, when we sing and you're singing from the heart, what happens? you start to express yourself with your body. I'm not saying you have to be dramatic necessarily, but you're using more than just words. So it's not just the words coming out. And listen, you know, you've probably been in some churches where the words are orthodox. I mean, they'll read scripture. They'll say things about God that may be true, but it's deadness. Here we have these two things, words and action, words and and kind of a demonstration. Uh, just, just something for us to think about. And I want to encourage you. You know, sometimes we're a little inhibited. And I'm not, I'm not saying I want people standing around doing this during worship. Okay, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's a freedom just to simply sing from the heart. And whether that means you close your eyes, whether that means you look up, you know, to, to, you know, to, to look up into the heavens. I mean, it's not that God is up there and he's not there, right? These are postures that we have because for us, they express a heart of worship. So just, I want to encourage you, just think through that a little bit. But what kind of king was the crowd actually celebrating? And I think this is where we begin to think through what is actually taking place here. They're, they're celebrating, first of all, what I believe uh, would be a, let's call him a conquering king. Much like that of Judas Maccabeus, who a number of years earlier entered Jerusalem as the liberator and conqueror for the people. And that time he came on a horse, as a warrior, as a conqueror, and the people did the same thing. Here comes the king. We're celebrating the king. And he went in and you know what he did? He took over Jerusalem. He overthrew the people that were there. They are looking for a conquering king. Might even call that Next, a, a cultural king that would be a created king. It's a second kind of king. You've probably heard people say, say it this way. You know, God wouldn't do fill in the blank. God wouldn't send sinners to an eternity in hell. Really? Um, and I say really because that's not what he says. He says that he does. You know, my God is a loving God. Yeah, the emphasis there is my God. Now, the true God is a loving God, right? But his love is fashioned by his holiness. And it's not that God loves to send people to hell because he, he's so nasty and wrathful. He must, to be a just God, exercise the punishment and the wrath that is the result of people's sin. There's a balance to who he is in our understanding of him, but, but people create their God in their own way, fashioned by their own likeness. 
So God wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. My God is a loving God. Or some people would say this. Jesus was a great man and a perfect example of how to live one's life for others rather than for yourself. I mean, hey, he certainly gave up his life. Isn't that an act of love? You know, be like him. Okay, the element of truth. Yeah, but there's far more to Jesus than that. The point here is that they're looking for a conquering king, but it's also a king that they've created based on their particular struggle, their particular need of the day. I'll just pause here and say this. We have an election in a couple of days. This is not a political statement, but this is the nature of man's statement. People will vote not based on what is good for the future. They will vote typically based on what they feel they need now. And they'll vote and ultimately will find out that what they thought they were getting when they were voted for what they need now is not actually what happens. And that's how people play on people's emotions. That's what's called advertising. It looks good. It's bigger. It tastes better. You drink it. You eat it. And you know what? It's empty. It's not what it thought you thought it was going to be. But in their minds, this is our struggle. This is our burden. We want someone to deliver us from Rome. Let me ask you this. Ultimately, does Jesus deliver his people from Rome? Yeah. Where's Rome now? Well, it's still in Italy. I understand that, all right? But, all right, ultimately... Jesus sits on a throne in heaven and and no nation, no conquering nation ever does anything outside of God's purposes for this world. Every every, every, um, empire, every kingdom that is conquered, it's all happened under the watchful care of the sovereign God who is at work orchestrating things on this earth. Now, we can't comprehend all that. We just trust that to be true. Now, not only is he a created king, but let's also say this. They're looking for a distorted king, a distorted king. Now, we we may be talking all about the same thing here, but I think this is a different angle that's helpful. They distorted, they had a distorted and a self-developed understanding of who this king really was. Yet Jesus purposefully comes in great humility and as such declares himself as a gentle king. He doesn't come on this horse. He doesn't come with his own pomp. He comes in humility on a donkey, showing that his purpose is peaceful, reflecting back to Zechariah, this king that was coming to die, this king that was coming to bring peace, to end war, and to establish a blood covenant. So Jesus, countering their expectations, comes as a sacrificial lamb. This is John's purpose with with writing uh, this gospel. So I say one of his purposes is, is to present Jesus as this true Messiah, as this true king. He is the word, the word is God, the word was made flesh and was in their presence. And he was that word who came to this earth but to be that sacrificial lamb that would go to the cross and die once for all for the nation. He would deliver them in that sense. So he comes as this peaceful king. Again, verse 14, they found a young donkey and sat on it uh, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. That would be talking about Jerusalem and, and in particular the Jews. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey. He is coming. The king is coming. 
but not in the way that you think. Now, now friends, there, there's a huge caution that screams at us through this text as we read it. Here it is. We must avoid any attempt to fashion and shape God in our own image, to force him to fit into our mold. Now friends, this is such an easy thing for us to do because we have certain desires, we have certain wants. I mean, I mean one of the ways that we, we do that, you heard, us, heard me talk about it before, is when people want to go off in a certain direction that we know is sinful, is not right, but they'll fashion and shape it in their thinking by saying, well, this is God's will. No, it's not. Oh yeah, it is, it's God's will. You've just taken God and you've, You've attempted to force him into what you desire and that God will be okay with it. You know, you want to divorce someone without biblical grounds, without, you know, getting the counsel of the church. You're saying, I just want what I want. Right? If, if you want to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold back, you know, some of the resources I have. I'm not going to give to the church because I have this, I have that. You know what? In your heart, you may be truly you know, offending God, but God knows that, but you tell people, hey, this is God's will, I've settled it. We can have these internal battles, but we, we salve our conscience by saying, well, this is God's will, and God's will becomes now this, this freedom now, and we force God into our own little mold, and we've gotta be very, very careful to take God at face value and allow him to be who he is, and we need to adjust, and we need to kind of make sure that we are putting ourselves in a place where we are taking him fully as he is revealed to us and adoring him for who he is when we have done that. So let me ask this question. Some people will say, well, my God, well, let me put it, let me change it a little bit, way, right? Your God may be a warm and fuzzy grandpa. What does that mean? Grandpas don't usually do any disciplining. Now, you might be the exception to the rule if you're a grandpa in here, right? But usually, grandpa is the one that does what? Buys the toys, gives the extra money. If the kid is not behaving, says, hey, uh, someone over here take care of this, right? He's always warm and loving. And let me tell you what, there's, there's a place for that kind of relationship. But God is not this perpetually... Um, warm and fuzzy grandpa who loves you always and will never say a hard word, all right? Sometimes people's God, I use a little, little G there, is, is much like a Santa Claus. You kind of view him as, well, you know, I've, I've done these good things, I've done these bad things, and, you know, he kind of looks at me and weighs the, the good and the bad, and the thing is you don't really think, you don't really realize how bad you really are to be able to say all the good things actually outweigh because they don't. They don't. So if you view God in that way, guess what? you're not getting any presents for Christmas because you're actually far worse than you think you are, okay? If you think I'm being unkind, I'm just trying to let you know this is what God's word teaches, okay? Uh, maybe your God is, a, is to you like a genie, someone you turn to in times of need. And quickly, rub, 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 rub. I'll grant you your wishes. Well, how many wishes do you get? Well, there's a certain limited, and after a certain limited amount of wishes, you know, maybe God's a little harder to, you know, rub and poof. And so you get discouraged after a while and he's just not there anymore. It's just completely distorted view of who God is. It's also possible that the God that you think of is always looking uh, to rain on your parade. It's like there's always something bad happening. Anyone just have a really bad week? 
you don't want to be honest here. Right? Anyone have a kind of like an almost really bad week? Or, all right. ever, have you ever had a really bad week? How's that? There you go. All right, all right. All right. Mass participation there, right? The, the, the really bad, really good is not necessarily a reflection of the character of God, except for the fact that he is consistent in all he does. But somehow there are some people that view God in such a way that he's always out to reign on their parade, when in reality, what they're experiencing likely is just circumstances or sin and its consequences and continued sin and its consequences and not, under, not willing to follow the parameters and the safety that God has provided. It's just a wrong view of who God is. Maybe it's a view that he's a brutal father punishing you for your sin. Some people just don't like the fact that God punishes sin. You know, God, God, he, he loves you. You know, he'll take care of your mistakes. Notice the word I use there. No, it's, Scripture calls it sin. And that sin ultimately sends Jesus to a cross. He doesn't hang on the cross. We're not celebrating the Lord's Supper today because Jesus went there for your mistakes. He went to the cross to bear the wrath of God, which was a payment for your sin. It's, it's really important that we understand the fullness and the totality of who God really is rather than kind of water him down. Here's one I've kind of, you know, you run across every once in a while, and that is that, that God is some cosmic policeman or, for, you know, I'll, I'll say it this way, he's some Orwellian big brother ready to turn you in when you go outside the established rules. Otherwise, you know, you step outside the line, it's like, boom, boom, going to get you there and get you back in shape. And, Friends, we've got to be careful because sometimes we can be like that. We can treat other people like we're those Orwellian big brothers. And so people have this view of God and it's distorted. And friends, their view of God was distorted, but they were celebrating the God that they felt they wanted, they felt they needed, but it's not the God who was coming. Now, God has blessed us by giving us his word so that we don't have to come to such a distorted conclusion as to who he is and what he's like. When we think about who God is, we need to come to conclusion about who he is from the pages of scripture. You've seen me do this before, but let's think about God. How do you understand God? You understand God like this. You understand him by looking through his revealed word that reveals his character, his heart, and what he does. The problem is many people don't view God like that. They view God by their circumstances, by their upbringing, by what the world teaches about God, and they do not allow the word of God to fashion or shape their understanding of who he is. And that is why when we open up our Bibles, that's when we, we come to church, when we sing songs, uh, we, are, we are trying to fashion and shape our understanding and our awareness of who he is. And that's why it's important that when we have songs that we're singing, that we're not presenting some kind of a soupy Jesus. That we're presenting a strong, stalwart God who is one who went to a cross, died for our sins, took on the wrath of God. Because that's what actually happened, and that's exactly what he does. Okay? We also sing about the great joy of salvation and the love that he gives us because of who we are and the fact that he seeks us out. And there's so many different things that we could say there. But we look as we study God's word for evidence of his love and his compassion. We see there the, his anger towards sin and his anger against death. Isn't that what we saw with the Lazarus story? We see his careful warning, his patient 
repetition with the religious leaders. I mean, as we've studied through Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes, I mean, isn't there a part of you that's just saying, man, you're just spending a lot of time. You know, just be done with it, you know? But he's patient, just repeating himself over and over again, connecting the dots, but they don't get it. We have God's word so that we can be in this process of seeing the whole picture of who he is. The ladies right now are going through a study on the names of God, right? It was just a great study because the names declare a certain aspect and dynamic of who God is. Great way to hang your hat on who he is just by looking at a particular name or there's a particular attribute of him. And so as you're studying God's word, you're looking for a revelation of who God is in the passages that are, are there so that you can be strengthened and taught and fashioned and, and have a greater understanding so that when you're interacting with God, you're not making false um, decisions based on a perceived awareness of who God is. It's based on truth that has been revealed to you through his word. So, Rather than celebrate the coming of the humble king, um, the humble king that, that brings peace through his sacrifice, the crowd celebrates a conquering king, which is really not what Jesus was coming to do, at least not this time. He will come back as the conquering king, but at this point in time, he's coming back as the humble sacrificial, sacrificial king. And then we have next the disciples who are confused. The disciples are confused. Now, it says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, we could say that the disciples, although they had walked with Jesus and listened to his teaching, were still growing in their belief. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 21 Six that tells us that the disciples were told by Jesus to go get the donkey for him. So they're part of this process. They go, they get the donkey. Jesus comes, he sits on the donkey, he starts going down there, and the disciples are all a part of this, but they're, based on what John is saying, they're just not understanding the significance of what is going on here. Oh, they probably recognize that, you know, the verse that's being quoted, the verse that's being sung, they, they understand that, but it's not until later that they connect the dots. It wasn't that they were blind, but that rather their understanding was foggy. Now, we must be careful here if we're tempted to condemn them. It's much easier to see God's hand and purposes after the fact in hindsight than it is while you're in the midst of the moment. Have you ever experienced that? And I, Honestly, I was just thinking about that you know, I remember, you know, two and a half years ago when someone mentioned, hey, Rob, would you consider starting a church? It was just like, <laughs> how in the world would God do that? And then over time, God just opened doors and did these different things. And now looking back, it's like, well, yeah, of course he did. Of course he would. Of course he has. And you can look back in your life and you could be, you know, looking at some very, very difficult situation. It may be a, a child who is rebelling, who is just consumed with the world, and you're doing all you can to kind of wrestle as a parent for God's glory and being that godly parent in the midst of that difficult situation. And in that moment, you're just saying, God, I don't understand. I don't understand why they're responding this way. I don't understand why this is happening. I've been doing X, Y, and Z. I know I'm sinful. I'm not perfect, but I've been representing you. I've been trying to do all I can to honor you. And, 
and this is what's going on, and in the moment, you, you're in a fog. But you're still trying to do what God wants you to do. But it may not be until a few years later that you look back and you say, that's what's going on. Now friends, that's just the reality. Those are the kind of things that we experience. It could be a financial hardship, it could be a job situation, and, you know, it could be all sorts of things and you're just like, in the moment, it's just like, God, what are you doing? I don't understand it. I don't, I don't completely connect the dots here, but guess what? God is at work. God knows what he's doing. And what we're told here is that these disciples ultimately remembered. We're told here they remembered when Jesus was glorified. So the question now is this. When, um, what do they remember? They don't remember, or sorry, they don't understand anything, but when was Jesus glorified? Well, interestingly enough, this is not the first flashback statement that John has given us. We want to turn to John chapter 2 and verse 22. You'll see the first one that we are given. And in this particular story, Jesus is in the temple, and he's talking about, hey, listen, in three days, I'm going to destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it up. And what we're told here in verse 22 is this. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. They remembered what Jesus said about the fact that he was going to destroy the temple and he was going to rebuild it in three days. At that point in time, it was a fog. They didn't understand. But it was when Jesus was raised from the dead. Aha, so one of the clues here is that his glorification has to do with something related to his death. Okay? But here we have, in our pre present passage, we are told that they remembered when Jesus was glorified. So let's just look at it this way. The glorification here refers to the time when, when Jesus had died, had resurrected from the tomb, and I would also say this, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples. So you have these events, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit now is given to his disciples. So you want to follow along, turn to John chapter 7 and verse 39. Here's, um, here's, a, here, here's what John tells us. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those whom believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet what? Glorified. Okay, I just want you to connect the dot there. When Jesus is glorified, what was going to happen based on that passage? The Holy Spirit was going to be given. All right? A little later in John's Gospel, John chapter 16, Latin, a good portion of John chapter 16 talks about this, but let's look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The helper here is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has to leave before the Holy Spirit comes. Okay? So it is through the promised Holy Spirit that the full significance of all that Jesus did in their presence would make sense. Now continue reading there in chapter 16, verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. You cannot bear them. You need the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you on all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
In other words, he's taking the things that I've, I've said, but he's declaring them to you. But now, because of the Holy Spirit's presence, you are now going to understand those things. There is going to be this ministry of illumination. Now, friends, we can, you know, we're, we're living in an era where the, the, the idea and understanding of the Holy Spirit tends to be very, very emotional, right? It's like I felt the Holy Spirit's presence and all that kind of stuff. But based on this, one of the key dynamics and key purposes of the Holy Spirit is to teach the believer what God says about himself, to reveal his word to that child of God. And when you're reading God's word and things start to connect and you, you, you begin to understand it or it's like, wow, something opens up, that is the Holy Spirit at work in your heart revealing God's truth to you. So friends, we who are now followers of Christ have this Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling um, within us. As we study, as we read, as we listen, as we interact with the Bible, he's at work teaching us um, about who Jesus is and what he continues to do on our behalf. So he glorifies Jesus by taking what is his and declaring it to us. He opens our foggy eyes and allows us to see what is true. He connects the dots and gives us insight that is food and fuel for our souls. And friend, if you're struggling to understand God's word, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that God has not left you alone. He has left you a guide. His name is the Holy Spirit. He's called a helper. He's called the paraclete. Literally, para means to, uh, to come alongside, uh, clete, to walk alongside. He, he walks alongside you as you go through life. He is there with you every step of the way, and he is the counselor. So the reality is, is when you're, when you're thinking about God's word, when you're pondering God's word, when you're contemplating God's word, when you feel convicted, when you feel uh, rejuvenated because of the word of God, that is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Okay? He teaches us, he guides us, he gives us insight, but it doesn't all come at once. And that's why we have a Christian walk that is a steady growth toward Christ's likeness. It's a steady understanding of who he is. And so throughout our lives, we're slowly growing in our awareness. The Holy Spirit is slowly shaping and connecting the dots for us. Now, if there's something that you are really, really struggling with, I want you to do three things. First of all, I want, to make sh- I want you to make sure that you're feeding on God's word. See, Many times people want God's will, they want God's direction, they want the Holy Spirit, so to speak, to kind of whisper stuff in their ear. They want a divine revelation. Friends, this is the divine revelation. You're not gonna be able to discern God's will without feeding on this. It is once we have fed on this, once we've allowed this to wash our hearts, the Holy Spirit comes and then makes sense of it in our lives. The Holy Spirit works through the word of God. So if you're just saying, well, God, just tell me, just tell me, just tell me, just tell me, and you're not spending time in the word of God, you're not gonna know. It's like me trying to change the light in my Camry. And I've gotta figure out how this is gonna work. You know, God, tell me, tell me, tell me. And there's a manual sitting there. That's a little different because it's not when I read the manual, somehow the, you know, the, the, the car spirit kind of jumps in and guides me, all right? But when we talk about the word of God, it is the spirit who teaches us through the word. It's there for us. But it does require work on our behalf. And it's steady work. So read the word of God, feed on it. Allow the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and insight. That would be the second thing. 
And the third thing is this. Once you've done that, then you can ask other people for help and, and direction and guidance because God uses people to help you with your understanding of the word of God also. But you need to be leaning on the Holy Spirit. You need to be asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and to give you insight. None of us knows every answer to every question. I'm sorry, you're gonna ask me some theological questions and my answer is gonna be what? I don't know. Or it's gonna be talk to Ron, or it's gonna be who knows, right? It's gonna be, you know, because he's not made any of us to be the ultimate source of knowledge. We're all in this process of growing to become like Jesus Christ. We're all in this process of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and revealing his truth to us. So what is it the disciples remember? Verse 16 again, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the two things are, they had remembered that these things had been written about him. In other words, these are prophecies from the Old Testament, things in the Old Testament that pointed and directed to Jesus. That's the first thing. There are things written, and there's also things that are um, done to him. So there's this idea, as I put up here, of scripture. There's this idea of sacrifice. Now, in the, the Old Testament has lots of things to say about the coming Messiah. John, in his gospel, does have scripture, but more often than not, what he has are specific images or allusions. We've looked at a number of those. The bread from heaven come down, the water of life, the good shepherd, the lamb of God. When you turn to Matthew's gospel, um, Matthew is full of Old Testament quotations because he's writing specifically to Jews. You turn to Luke's gospel, and this little account in Luke's gospel where Jesus meets some disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what does he do there? First of all, he kind of chastises them a little bit. Oh, you have little faith. But then he starts to reveal Jesus, the Messiah, from the Old Testament. Just points out who he is, walks them through the Old Testament that shows who the Messiah is. And then, of course, not only is there scripture, but there's suffering. So they're remembering what was written about Jesus and what was done to Jesus. So these are the first two. You have the first one, which is celebration. The second one is confusion. And now we have frustration. Now these are the Pharisees. This is a militant frustration. This is a frustration because our plan isn't working. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. I just wonder if that's kind of, there's some bickering going on in between them. Look, the world has gone after him. So we must put this in a proper context. The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, were willing to chafe under the yoke of Roman bondage. They were concerned that with this uprising, that Rome would react and suppress and cause damage to their position and and, and their status quo. So they're upset, even with the decision that has been made by the Sanhedrin, of which they were a part of, a minority part. The Sadducees were part of the major part, but the decision was made to actually get Jesus and to kill him. But now, all these people are coming to Jesus. In other words, he's getting us, or this is getting us nowhere. Our plan is gaining us nothing. This is a vain pursuit, so much so that the world is now coming to Jesus. And what they meant by that is everyone here in Jerusalem is now beginning to follow him. In fact, if you look at the next section of Scripture that John gives us, boop, we have Greeks on the scene. 
which are non-Jews, which are broader than Jerusalem, but they are there and they are present. And there's something pitiful and humorous about the frustration of the Pharisees. Here is man attempting to shake his fist at God, but failing in every attempt. How many times did they try to grab a hold of Jesus? How many times had they tried to, you know, to, to take him and to kill him or to arrest him? And ultimately, they will be successful. But what they think is success is actually God's perfect plan being accomplished. And soon they will have Jesus in their hands. Soon they will send Jesus to Pilate to carry out the crucifixion. Soon he will be hung on a cross and soon they will feel satisfied and secure because of what they have done. But the irony here is in their words. Look, the world has gone after him. The world. It's not, hey, Jerusalem is going after him, but the world has gone after him. Now just remember uh, the, the last couple of times we've been looking in John's gospel, we had Caiaphas who spoke purposely talking about you know, it's better that one man die than the nation. And he's thinking politically, thinking strategically, let's kill Jesus, get him out of the way. But that statement was also prophetic. He had no idea, but it was prophetic. Mary is anointing Jesus' body. She's expressing her love and adoration for him, her gratitude because of what happened with Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the tomb. She's anointing him, but Jesus is saying, aha, don't have a problem with her because she is preparing me for my burial. She, I don't think, ultimately knew what she was doing, but God was using it and it was a picture for what was yet to take place. And here in these small words, the Pharisees say, even, what does he say? The, the, the world has gone after him. There's something broader than simply Israel going on here. This is the world that's being talked about. And that's why John 3.16 is really important for God so loved what? The world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that we have these three different reactions. Celebration, a distorted celebration. Confusion, but a confusion that was um, given light after the glorification of Jesus Christ and this ongoing frustration of the Pharisees and ultimately you might even say the Sanhedrin about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, just some concluding thoughts. And just, just think of these more as preparation thoughts for our Lord's table together. Because I think, I think this passage speaks a lot to us about that. But first of all, the question is this. Uh, with whom do you identify? Do you identify with um, the crowds? In other words, guys, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in the emotional celebration side of what it means to be a part of a church or what it means to even be part of Christianity. And this kind of a bandwagon thing and it's all the kind of, oh, this sounded great. Look at all the things that are going on. Look at this. And, and, and you're there for all the wrong reasons thinking that God is something when he really isn't what you're thinking that he is. Your God, my God, a God of your creation, a cultural, a Christian cultural God, you might even say. Do you relate with that? Do you relate with the disciples who are not understanding, they're confused, they're in a fog? Or do you relate with these Pharisees that are frustrated with who Jesus is? Now, I, I would probably think that 
it wouldn't be the Pharisees. I certainly hope not. And if it is, um, I'd love to be able to talk with you. You know, you're not antagonistic. And at the same time, you may be because you're struggling. Maybe you're angry with God for some reason. But I find myself relating to the disciples. I find myself being in a fog sometimes, not completely understanding what God is doing. I remember a couple years ago, my brother came out to visit, and what I try and do with anyone that comes from out of, out of the, the state to visit the Bay Area is to show them San Francisco in particular. My brother said, I want to go see the Golden Gate Bridge, and so beautiful day, sun was shining kind of like today, maybe a little cooler. We start our way over. We waited a little bit later, it was a Sunday, and we started to go over there, and as we I usually go over 92 and then go down, was it 280? And then I hop over to the coastline and drive up the coastline that way. We get up to the coastline, the fog starts to roll in. We get to Daly City and it's just like solid fog. So we drive down Ocean Beach, we kind of go back and through, go around in through the, the Presidio and you come out underneath the Presidio to Golden Gate Bridge, and we pulled in the parking lot there, we got out, and literally you couldn't see 20 feet in front of you. I took my brother to go see the Golden Gate Bridge, and all he saw was 20 feet of it. But you know what? We, in that, in that, that small distance, we were able to not see the magnitude of the whole bridge, but a small part of the bridge. And you may have been there, they have one of these displays where they take the actual cable, and they've sliced it for you, and you realize that this cable is made of thousands of smaller cables. And so we just looked at the smaller cable, and then we actually could see the beginnings of it, this, this huge cable, but we couldn't see the rest of it. But, but because of the fog, get this, because of the fog, we were not sidetracked by the magnitude of the whole thing. We were able to see the beauty of the minutia of what took place in creating that. Now friends, hear this. Sometimes the fog that we experience is purposeful because God wants us to see what's going on at the moment. Fog can be a good thing. You're more alert sometimes when you're in the fog, right? You're more careful when you're in the fog. But at the same time, that's just a bit of what is going on in the big picture. So we need to know these big picture things like God is sovereign, he's completely in control, he's completely aware, he has this divine plan and that plan is not only for his son and, and his purposes in the grand scheme, it's also for us, but he gives us a picture of this small arena and gives us the data sometimes that we need for that particular moment, but we may not see all that is going to take place. I find myself in the fog, but I'm thankful that the fog is lifted every once in a while and I can see the bigger picture. The second question I have is this. How do you see Jesus? We have three windows that we can look at here. The first one is the window of salvation. He's the hope of Israel. He's the Hosanna, the same crowd that actually is wanting Jesus to come and be a conqueror. Come save us as a conqueror is actually quoting scripture and is actually pointing back to the fact that they need a savior, and the savior is Jesus Christ who would go to that cross and hanging on that cross would die for the sin of the world. He would be the ultimate savior. Jesus hung on that cross. He died as a savior in your place. He was a substitute for you because you deserve to be there. Secondly, um, 
this, this idea of scripture. He is the fulfillment of scripture. Now, I don't want to say he is scripture, but scripture is all pointing to Christ and his purposes and his accomplishment and, and what he has done for us ultimately on that cross. And scripture is just, just motivating and, and moving us to see him afresh. And then there's this last one, the sacrifice. He's the lamb of God. He's the lamb that John says that takes away the sin of Jerusalem, right? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They didn't know what they were saying, ultimately. But what they were saying was pointing a picture at what Jesus ultimately, as that king, has come to, uh, came to do. He came as a king to be that substitute. He came to fulfill scripture. He came ultimately to be that sacrifice. And friends, that is all true for you if you will embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Let me just take a moment right now. Let's pray. Let us just take some time in the quietness of the next moments as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table to see Jesus afresh, to allow his Holy Spirit to reveal to us, Lord, areas that, or areas in our lives and our hearts that we need to confess to him. And don't rush through it. Allow him freedom to, to reveal to you where you are and then confess repent and if you are here with us visiting we invite you to come and join us in our celebration of the Lord's table if and only if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior I would just really caution you if you're not a child of God um, don't pretend be honest and we will totally and thoroughly respect you for that and um, just want to encourage you if you are visiting with us and you know the Lord, to, to join with us as we celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, allow us to contemplate who you are. You ultimately are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Your entry into Jerusalem, Lord, was a, a humble, misunderstood entry with antagonists all around and disciples that were still scratching their head. Lord, we have the great privilege of reading the end of the story, kind of seeing the events take place and having a narrator or someone like John walking us through these details. Lord, we can see your humility, your sacrifice, your willingness, Lord, to come and be our savior to fulfill scripture and to be that sacrifice once for all, to be the lamb, the Passover lamb, the ultimate lamb of God that died on that cross, Lord, to save all those, Lord, that you were drawing to yourself, that we'd consider, Lord, the world. Lord, may we be in awe of that Help us, Lord, to remember. And Lord, to not forget. But Lord, in remembering to be reju rejuvenated by your spirit in the things that you've called us to. Help us now, Lord, as we celebrate your Lord's table. We ask in your name. Amen.